Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I'm not joined by any guest host today, which uh, means that we're not going to be able to have any of that playful banter that all of you enjoy so much, or maybe you don't, and so this is the greatest episode ever for you. Uh, but we are going to jump right on in then and talk a little bit about some elections, because I'm joined by Professor Rick Hassan of UCI Law, who is going to talk to us a little bit about elections, but in particular about his new book, which is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. So welcome back to the show. I guess you've been on before. Yeah, great to yeah. be back with you. Great. Well, so, you know, we were actually talking, uh, I was talking with your people originally about doing this show a little bit earlier, but I had to go to a conference and it just didn't quite work out. And I'm kind of glad that it didn't because by doing this later, we now have the fortuitousness to discuss, speaking of distrust, uh, let's talk about Iowa. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, Iowa was great for my book, but terrible for the country, I would say. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, I mean, Iowa, Iowa's not quite the same as many of the elections that we have. It's not really run by like a secretary of state or anything like that. I mean, it's a, like a state parties run them as like, is it fair to call them like mini conventions? Well, a convention, everyone's in the same place. So yeah. it's a caucus where, or a series of caucuses where people are meeting in, in high school gyms and in other places, and then they're supposed to aggregate the results. And it was the aggregation where things went south. Yeah, it seems as though there were potentially many issues. Uh, it seems as though there was some new app that was being used. Right, so... What happened in Iowa was that they changed both the technology they were using to report results as well as kind of the rules themselves, where it used to be just reported the end result. Uh, you know, what happens is people get into a room and then they shift their way around as you figure out which candidates have the least support and, and you realign yourself. This time, according to reporting the New York Times, the local people had to report 36 different pieces of information to headquarters. And they were going to do that with an app, an app that had not been adequately tested, an app that had not even been downloaded by some of the uh, precinct people before they were supposed to be using it. So just really a kind of disaster in the making, which we all kind of knew was going to be a problem. And then there was some mischief after that, which was there was a backup phone number. And apparently the phone number was posted online and it was on 4chan and people were jamming the phone lines to mess things up more. Uh -huh. So it was like one thing after another. And, and rather than fess up to it uh, initially, the uh, Iowa Democratic Party issued a cryptic statement that they were having, quote, quality control problems, which just caused people to be more Suspicious. concerned about what was going on. And then it took, you know, it took a couple of days. And then when they finally started issuing returns, they had to issue corrections, which is always a bad thing. Um, you know, better if you're going to be late to just wait till it's all, you know, all lined up and then give us, you know, the actual results that you've got. Uh, in the meantime, the chair of the Iowa Democratic Party has resigned, and I expect that there's going to be a very serious discussion about whether Democrats are not going to use a caucus in Iowa anymore. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of a mixed feelings on caucuses. I understand all of the problems with them. Uh, 
obviously they're because people have to be in a physical location and they're known uh, and it leads to all sorts of pressure potential. But I've always had a soft spot for the idea that people can congregate together and talk about what they want to do, uh, have discussions that say, oh, if you like that person, have you considered this person? Like all happening kind of in real time as people try to, you know, bring folks over after the first viability test. Uh, but I, I get the problems and I, I think maybe, maybe this is the end of it, but I don't know. I, I'd i be sad to see it go because I think it's it's such a quirky, weird thing that I, I don't know. I have a soft spot. I, you, you probably think that it, that that the other problems outweigh, but well, it's not only that. I also think that there. Not only do we see screw ups in every caucus year. Uh, you know, I've written pieces in 2012, 2008 on this. Not only do we have that, but we also had. You know, it's very exclusionary. Yeah, uh, I think turnout was something like 10. percent You know, if you have to work or you you have to be out of town, or you have a disability, and it's very hard to participate in the caucus. And, you know, I don't know how much deliberation there really is in the typical caucus. I'm reminded of an article that one of my election law colleagues wrote, uh, a guy named Jim Gardner. It was called Shut Up and Vote. <laughs> oh, we have the idea, you know, deliberation is somewhat overrated, uh, you know, in terms of actually convincing people uh, what they should be doing. And especially, you know, there's no secret ballot there. So, you know, there's right. a lot of social pressure. Right. I don't know that that's like you're having an honest discussion among equals. It might just be, oh, come on, come over here because, uh, you know, you like me. It's one of those places where I always kind of felt like it makes sense in Iowa, but not as a process, but not in other states that go later, because to the extent deliberation has any value, I, I think it would only be as like the primary winnowing sort of situation where you stab people who are still supporting Michael Bennett or something. Uh, and so you need to have that kind of conversation. But once you have a solidified set, like when you talk about Washington caucuses and stuff like that, by then... You're down to who's left, and I, I've never really understood it there, but oh well. <laughs> well, you know, Nevada's going to be using a caucus, True. too. True. They were going to be using the same app, or they were going to be using the same companies that designed an app for them, because they're now rolling out early voting to try to deal with some of the other problems with caucuses. Uh-huh. And so now they've scrapped the app, and they have a brand new system. They're going to use Scantron forms and number two pencils, which is probably a better way to go at least have a paper record yeah but it's an untested system so oh boy okay you know we'll hold our breath that's exciting well all right well let's transition now to talking about some more things from the book but i'll uh take a break here to just thank our sponsors so today's episode is brought to you by your adorable ant farm uh who's very mad at you because you're still at the office slogging through an endless doc review project make better decisions keep your pets and work smarter with logical e-discovery software that gets you started in minutes don't let outdated e-discovery be the hill that you die on Create your free account today at logiccoll.com forward slash ATL. That's logic with a K, C U L L dot com forward slash ATL. Ah, every week I try to, they, the original copy was a cat and every, and with a pun, and I spend every week now coming up with a new animal and a new pun to put in there. So I'm starting to run out of animals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, after a while, you start going like, huh, we really don't keep a lot of different things, pets. Uh, but here we are. Uh, so I guess a good transition from Iowa to the subject of the book, is you, one of the themes, and not just of this book, but of, of all your work, is that there's kind of a crisis of confidence in the electoral system. Uh, and that's, you would say, where, you know, 
bad actors come in to try and exploit that, I, I suppose. Well, that was true in Iowa, even, yeah, where exactly. you had uh, the president's campaign manager coming in and saying it was rigged against Bernie Sanders when all of the evidence was that it was just Democratic incompetence, not someone trying to steal the election. Yeah. Um, yeah, the whole book is about the four reasons why trust in American elections is declining and why people no longer are confident that their ballots are going to be fairly and accurately counted. And, and that's really troubling because the democracy depends on people believing that the results that are announced are accurate and that the process was fair. And, you know, uh, if you're on the losing side, well, I'll just fight another day. Yeah. See how that goes. Yeah. One of the problems with confidence that I kind of have noticed and it's touched on a little bit in your book when you talk about Georgia is backtrack, you know, five years, we were already hearing mostly from the Republican side of the aisle claims of, you know, voter fraud and therefore we need to do X, Y, Z thing to suppress vote. I mean, they wouldn't call it suppressing, but all these other methods to deal with some phantom, even though there was no empirical evidence of widespread voter fraud, deal with that. And then post-2016, and obviously the the Georgia example that I'm setting up for you to elaborate on from the book, it seems as though now the Democratic side has gotten into the discussion with everything being Russia's fault or the shenanigans of Brian Kemp. And it's and instead of just saying, hey, these things are bad, they're saying, you know, they're spreading the idea that maybe you can't trust the results of elections, too. The usual debate we hear about voter fraud and voter suppression is, you know, it's kind of a tired one. And in the first chapter of the book, I talk about how uh, when it was finally put to a trial, the evidence of voter fraud being a massive problem is not there. And uh, I think that's really been well established. But what the debate does is it convinces people on both sides that elections are being stolen that Democrats are using fraud, that Republicans are trying to suppress the vote. And in fact, I do think that the Republicans have been passing laws, not everywhere, but in some places, but they're almost always passed by Republicans and opposed by Democrats. Laws passed in the name of preventing voter fraud or promoting voter confidence that are aimed at making it harder to register and vote. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that in Kansas. I talk about that in Georgia, as you mentioned. And, and then there's other kinds of shenanigans as well. And Georgia is a good example where... You had Brian Kemp, who was the Secretary of State, the Chief Election Officer of the state, running for office as governor, running his own election. And he had been in trouble for a long time for his incompetence in running the state's voter registration database. And one of the things that he uh, did when somebody reported to the Democratic Party that there was still a hole in security in the voter registration database, the Democrats went to some computer scientists at Georgia Tech to see if that was a legitimate concern. Georgia Tech went to some national security agency in D.C. Next thing you know, Brian Kemp is accusing the Democrats of trying to hack into the election and puts that false claim on the front of the Secretary of State's website on the Saturday before the Tuesday of the election, you know, the website yeah. that people are going to to figure out where they're supposed to vote. I mean, it was what I consider the kind of the most banana republic moment in modern American <laughs> electoral uh, history. And just really terrible kind of hiding his malfeasance with misfeasance, yeah. uh, just, you know, really piling it on. And uh, now, of course, he's governor of Georgia. And Democrats came in and said that he stole the election. And, you know, that's another problem is how do we talk about elections and when is it proper to call it stolen? Because I think when you do start throwing around terms like that, you run the risk of further causing people to lose confidence in the process. And even just talking about this 
is something that does cause people to worry. But I don't think we can bury our heads in the sand. I think we have to ask, you know, what can we do in the next nine months to try and make things better? Yeah, because and I think this is a, a theme of a lot of what you talk about, because it's not about like the elections, this kind of election shenanigan stuff. It's not only bad if the wrong person gets chosen. It's bad that it happens and might even erase a quote unquote meaningless vote. That's still a problem for democracy. Right. So rather than have a debate about whether or not elections are stolen, I think we should ask the question, why does the state get to make it harder for people to register and vote for no good reason? Right. And really focus on the dignity of each voter. Because, you know, um, I did an interview with uh, Nina Perales of Maldef, and she was talking about how she had a a client who was a citizen who was falsely accused of being a non-citizen. By the time the stuff was over, she was just like, um, you know, I don't even feel like voting anymore. You know, it really is creates a kind of defeatism, uh, whether or not it's swaying election outcomes. Ugh. You know, uh, the example of Kansas that, you know, you use in the book it, it, with soon to probably be Republican candidate, Chris Kovach running again for Senate, it seems like. But in that case, you were talking about being falsely accused and how egregious the false accusations are. There was a person in a courthouse who uh, who I believe was identified on the stand as maybe not of America. Well, so this was crazy. This, this, this was yeah. a case that didn't get really enough attention. I consider it the most important voting rights case of the 21st century so far. It's called Fish versus Kobach. And it was a case involving Kansas's law that requires documentary proof of citizenship. Show me your papers, like your naturalization certificate, your birth certificate, before we'll let you register to vote. And this law, before a federal court temporarily enjoined it, this law prevented 30,000 people from registering to vote in the state of Kansas. And the case went back and forth among the different federal courts. But at, at the point in the trial that I'm uh, talking about, Chris Kobach, the notorious vote suppressor from the state of Kansas, the secretary of state, the one who claimed that you know millions of people backed up Trump's unsupported claim, millions of, uh, of non-citizens voted in the 2016 elections. He has to prove that non-citizen voting is a real problem. And he had called it the tip of the iceberg. And he puts on an expert, and the expert comes up with various ways of trying to show how many non-citizens are voting. And one is worse than the next. And the one you were just referring to was he took those 30,000 people on that list. And he and his graduate assistant coded their last names as whether they were, quote, foreign or non-foreign sounding in order to figure out how many non-citizens there were. I mean, it's a totally ludicrous oh. way to do it. You know, so there's all this talk about, why did you code this Lopez as a citizen and this Lopez isn't? But Dale Ho of the ACLU is cross-examining this witness and says, uh, if I asked you the name Carlos Mergia, would you code that as foreign or non-foreign? And the expert says, can you spell that for me? And and uh, Dale Ho spells it. And he says, yeah, probably foreign. And then Dale comes back and says, are you aware that Carlos Mergia is a judge who sits in this courthouse? Right. <laughs> and the expert says, no, I'm not. You know, but it was just like this absurd moment. And, and the judge at the end of the case, federal district court judge Julie Robinson, fourth generation Kansan, first African-American woman appointed to that court by George W. Bush. Uh, she says there is no iceberg. There's just an icicle made up mostly of administrative error. And, you know, I think, you know, it's kind of like a more like a puddle of evaporated water. There really was nothing to it uh, in the end. So, you know, it's a and uh, it's demoralizing for the people, you know, those 30,000 people were unless the ACLU and the uh, other plaintiffs and the, and the and the federal courts intervened. Those people would have been disenfranchised for no good reason. Yeah. 
It's just so weird to me, uh, all of these excuses. Uh, one of the ones that I remember, can't remember which state, but I think it probably was a theme in a lot of them. I remember a while ago somebody made some argument for some massive purge. Uh, was it Wisconsin, maybe? Uh, some massive purge because, oh, we think these people might have died based on not much as opposed to, I mean, if, if that's if that's your real concern, then may as well just say everybody over the age of 70 must re, re-register every year. But they would never do that for obvious reasons. And it just kind of made, when I heard it, I was just like, well, this... This makes no sense. Why would you assume these people died when there's no, like, actuarial reason to assume these names on a list have a higher propensity of being dead than any other reason? Well, you know, just to play devil's advocate for a minute, these lists of voters are in many places not kept up very well. And so people move, people die, and they're not removed, and things are not updated. I mean, it's not a surprise that, that we have incompetent government officials. And I think things have gotten better. Uh, but there's still a lot of resistance, in part because I think that, you know, you do run the risk of disenfranchising people who are, they're still eligible voters, and that's just a mistake. We just saw this come out very recently in Wisconsin. Wisconsin is relying on this interstate cooperation agreement called ERIC, where states compare voter registration information to try and cull the dead wood. And it's pretty good, but it's like 95% accurate, which means, you know, 5% of the people are going to be wrongly listed there. So you need to do some checks. And in Wisconsin, you have this conservative group that was coming in and saying, you need to remove people immediately that have been flagged by Eric. And a trial court, a state trial court agreed. It's now up on appeal. The appeals courts put it on hold. But it turns out that most of the people that were on that list as listed as potentially, or many of the people, I should say, were on that list listed as potentially no longer living in Wisconsin, voted as recently as the 2016 presidential election. So you really have to do it carefully to make sure that you're doing it right. Because, you know, if you err on the side of just purging people without checking it out, you're going to disenfranchise people. And that's not as bad in Wisconsin as some other places, because in Wisconsin, there's same-day voter registration. So if you're kicked off, you can re-register. But, you know, that may take time. And, you know, that's still going to make it harder for some people to be able to go and vote when they have an absolute right to, uh, then there's no good reason for removing them from the voting rolls. Yeah. Yeah. Same day registration is definitely a saving grace in that situation. Uh, I'm in New York. But lots of states don't have that. Right. Yeah. New York notoriously for a long time, you had to be registered for forever, basically before you could, before the election, it was, uh, really onerous. Well, New York, you know, if, if New York's, um, election administration occurred in a Southern state, you'd have Democrats protesting that it was vote suppression. Oh, yeah. Uh, because it's just so terrible. Well, I was actually a quasi-elected official uh, when I lived in Brooklyn, and we were a pre-clearance jurisdiction. Like, we we were it listed with all the southern states as a jurisdiction that required pre-clearance if we made changes. Yes, yeah, yes. Because um, New York is that bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, uh, you know, there's been some attempts to make things better in New York, but you have a lot of resistance from the political establishment. No question about that. Yeah. So, you know, since we're talking about different states doing different stupid things and the inefficiencies that go along with it, one suggestion you are a big fan of historically is a nonpartisan federal system uh, because this whole thing is expensive and complicated and maybe it's too much for states. So how would something like that work? And, you know, do you have any any lingering hope that the powers that currently be could ever get to that? 
Well, so I, I first floated that idea in, in book form in my 2012 book, The Voting Wars, and I still stand by it. National nonpartisan election administration, you know, centralized same machinery everywhere, national voter ID card, uh, you know, the whole way, you know, that you see other advanced democracies doing their job, you know, whether that's uh, Australia, Canada, UK, Germany. But, you know, my main focus in writing this book is not the long-term solutions, although I think they're important, but triage. What can we do given that we're worried that the losers might not accept the election results in the upcoming election? I mean, so, you know, what can you do in the next nine months? Mm -hmm. Some people have said, you know, election meltdown sounds alarmist. And my response is I'm trying to sound the alarm because (laughs) I am concerned about things. I'm not trying to make people panic, but I want people to think about what are the steps that can be done by the media, by election officials, by the average person, uh, by campaigns before we get to the next major election? Because we're so polarized right now that, you know, it's, it, it's going to be under a microscope and people are going to be very distrustful of the whole process. Well, you put the media in that list, and I think that's that's one of the hardest ones to uh, to get moving, I think, because... It seems to me as though if if we're saying that there's as bad as the these attacks on confidence are, they're certainly the sorts of things that are being repeated by a media and the the whole kind of we need immediate results. Anything that's not immediate is a problem, which I guess in Iowa it was. But uh, that that mentality that kind of comes from a twenty four hour news cycle, uh, that's one that it almost seems is going to be one of the most difficult blockades to getting anything done in the short term. I absolutely think there has to be an education of the media and then the yeah. media educating the public about how long election results take to come in. This is especially important in this upcoming election because we're going to be in a situation where the um, for the first time, Pennsylvania is going to have no excuse absentee balloting and there's going to be a flood of ballots and we already know that those ballots take days to count. Mm -hmm. And so it could be a while before we know who won in Pennsylvania. We also know that those late counting ballots, at least over the last few years, have tended to be Democratic. So it's possible that Trump is leading in Pennsylvania on election night, and then it takes another few days before we find out that he actually didn't win Pennsylvania. That's just a recipe for people believing that, you know, something was done in a crooked way. Yeah. And so I think we, you know, and it provides an opening for Trump to claim fraud. He he did this right. very thing in 2018 in the very close race between the incumbent Bill Nelson and the challenger Rick Scott for the U.S. Senate race in Florida. And, uh, you know, he said, must go with election night. The other ballots are massively infected, uh, you know, which is a claim that was completely unsubstantiated. But you can imagine those kinds of claims of fraud. If it's a very close election, uh, it could get very ugly very quickly. Well, and on the topic, you've used the word incompetent a few times. That election, I think there were, there are some specific places of incompetence within the Florida system. I, I mean, I think a lot of people remember Bush v. Gore incompetence, but that's continued. Like there hasn't really been a fix to the incompetence in Florida since then. So, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize because yeah. I think – in ge- well, what I say is, in general, I think election administration is a lot better now than it was in 2000. 
uh, not to say that it's good everywhere, but it's better. But there are still these pockets of incompetence. They often are in big cities. You know, the example that you're uh, alluding to was yeah. Broward County, Florida, yeah. with Brenda Snipes, Democratic elected uh, official, a history of problems. In one election, she failed to mail out 58,000 absentee ballots <laughs> to people who requested them. In another election, they left a medical marijuana initiative off some of the ballots that were printed. In another election, she released early vote totals before she was allowed to. In another election, she destroyed ballots before the 22-month period that federal law says you have to preserve them for. And then in 2018, in this very close race, they are supposed to do a recount because it's so close. They get the recount done in time. It's a very strict deadline. But because the election workers don't know how to do it, they don't submit their results until two minutes after the deadline, and so they're not counted. But those results were so bad that the board later says, the Broward County Board of Elections later says, we trust the initial totals better than the recounted totals. There were 2,040 more votes in the uh, initial total, so we're going to report those. I mean, just not the level of competence that you want. And when it, if it were a little bit closer between Nelson and uh, Scott, yeah, it no, would have no, been no, just Nelson, uh, Scott, a disaster. Yeah. yeah. Uh, really a disaster. And so these weak links really threaten our process. And of course, back to the media, the media is always paying attention to where the worst things are. And so mm-hmm. that's what we hear. And so that's the information we, you know, we tend to generalize from that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, one question that is not really about this election issue, but that I'm just fascinated by generally because it's coming to New York City. The whole ranked choice voting idea uh, obviously makes elections much more complex because now you've got kind of a ranked choice. But New York's a big jurisdiction and uh, is bigger than most states and is going to start going down this road. Do you think like that sort of experimentation, obviously it could come with some issues, but it also, it might be the sort of thing that jumpstarts a, you know, you aren't going to get your results as quickly as you want, and that's okay. Maybe, you know, yeah. so, you know, you have to balance different factors. So one one reason against it might be the delay. Another is, you know, it's more complex. Uh, but the benefit is you potentially get results that are, uh, I don't want to say more accurate, because it's not about how the votes are counted, but that better reflect popular will. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but go back to 2000, if you imagine that most of the Nader voters, the voters for the Green Party candidate, Ralph Nader, uh-huh. that their second choice would have been Gore rather than Bush, and, right. and there's some controversy over this, but if that's true, then what would have happened if neither Bush nor Gore got to 50% because of these third-party candidates? You'd take the bottom candidates and you'd reallocate the people who voted for those bottom candidates, you'd reallocate their votes to their second choice. And so if it's true that, you know, most of those Nader voters would be going for Gore, then he would end up winning as opposed to a majority of people getting the choice that they like the least, which would be George W. Bush with the third choice. I mean, that, yeah. that's the logic behind it. But it requires educating people and it requires, you know, more complexity. And we're going to have that in the early vote part of the Nevada caucus. Yeah. Um, we'll see how that goes. I do like the fact that there's experimentation with voting. I just don't like to see it in really high stakes elections first. I, you know, got to work out the kinks when people are, you know, when the stakes are a little lower and people are not as hot about what's going to happen. Yeah. No, that it's. It's going to be interesting. You know, back to the the national idea, I, I'm for it for a lot of reasons, but especially because I feel like the federalism model has not been taking advantage of 
what's supposed to be good about federalism. But when Maine kind of went, started going down this ranked choice thing, I was like, oh, that's actually somebody taking up the mantle of states' rights and doing something interesting, doing some experimenting. This is what it's supposed to be about. So, Yeah. Well, you know, my colleague, Ned Foley, who's at Ohio State, he has a new book out about this in terms of the Electoral College. And he says that really what, uh, you know, really what the people who passed the 12th Amendment wanted to do was to move to a system where you actually have a majority winner in each state. So, you know, you take those Gary Johnson votes and those Jill Stein votes and you reallocate them. And he thinks people should do that for 2020. I don't know if there's any movement towards that in uh, in some of these states, but uh, you know it eliminates the so-called spoiler role of the third-party candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you know, it does complicate things and delay things, no doubt about it. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's all very interesting and all obviously very uh, fraught with media attention and unfortunately probably more recriminations and distrust. And all we can do is kind of always be vigilant in pointing out that the worst impulses that some people have aren't accurate, you know? Yeah, well, I hope that there's more we can do than that, which is <laughs> well, to yeah. ca- kind of uh, really try to educate the public and make sure that election procedures are transparent, make sure that there are good backup plans. So what, one of the things I talk about in election meltdown is what if we had a cyber attack on the power grid in a democratic city in a swing state like Detroit or Milwaukee? Uh-huh. What's plan B? Are we rerunning the election just in Milwaukee? Like, how's that going to work? Yeah. And so we've been talking about this, uh, those of us in the field, for years. And, you know, yet there's really not enough urgency uh, in Congress or in the states to deal with these kinds of potential disasters that could affect our elections. Mm. Yeah. And those are all sorts of problems that I fear aren't going to be resolved in the next couple of months. But definitely things. Well, I'm sounding the alarm. Yeah. Sound the alarm now. You've been warned. Yes. Everybody listening, uh, you've been warned. (laughs) Yes. So see what we can do. Always, always good to have you on, especially when we're, uh, when we're talking about something that's pretty timely. So Professor Hassan is the uh, author of Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and Threat to American Democracy. So go out and grab that and learn about some of these issues that we touched on briefly here today. Thanks for joining as always. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And uh, for all of you listening, thanks for listening. You should be subscribed. You should give reviews. That's all important. I think you all get that by now. You should be reading above the law. You should follow at Joseph Patrice on Twitter. Uh, you should listen to the other shows of the Legal Talk Network. You should listen to the Jabot, which is our above law editor, Catherine Rubino's show. And with all of that said, oh, and thank you to Logical for sponsoring. And with all that said, I think we're done. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.